0: I don't know if you've listened to my podcast before, but sometimes there's a bit of explicit language, and this is one of those times. It's Friday, January twenty sixth, two thousand eighteen. From Slate, it's the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I listened to a Ross Douthat podcast twice in the last couple days, not the same one, two different ones. He was on with Tyler Cowen. Love that podcast. And David Axelrod, rule of thumb, if you're on with Chotner, The Axe, Convos with Tyler, I'll throw Larry Wilmore, Preet Bharara, and Ezra Klein. You talk to any of those guys, you show up on between two and five of them, I will listen to you three or four times. I'm not even a huge Ross Duthat fan. Duthat, He's been on the show. Nice guy. Smart guy. But the thing is, Ross Duthat, New York Times columnist, is very, very concerned with religion and Catholicism, and I just don't care that much. I like theology, okay. Hey, what do you believe in? What are the dietary restrictions? Heaven, okay, hell, reincarnation. I like the basics. Sketch it out for me. I go next level, but not deep down to the next level. Interesting, swordfish, kosher or not kosher. I'm game. Transubstantiation of the Eucharist. Sure, let me know about that. Did the lineage of Muhammad flow through his nephew slash son-in-law or the caliphate? Yes, I'd like to know. But deeper than that, I don't you know what? That's kind of among you people. So Duthit, he's often picking apart issues of theology that don't interest me as much as actual, tangible, real world issues do. They're they're deep and they're brilliant, but it's all pretend, right? It's all this Deep arguing over picky points over inherently something that's pretend. I don't want to insult you if that's your religion. But, you know, if I were to get really, really into Hindu theology and read all the people arguing about it, and then if I were to get really, really into Catholic theology and do the same, at least one of those would have to be pretend, right? We'd have to admit. Can't be both. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you about something else that I think is pretend. The doomsday clock. Do you know this thing? The Bulletin of Concerned Scientists puts this together. And now we're told the doomsday clock is two minutes to midnight. I'm fascinated with the acquisition of nuclear weapons. I listen to the Arms Control Wonks podcast. The Indians have the Agni-5 ICBM out. That I want to know about North Korea, of course. But your doomsday clock is a pretend clock. Tell me about the Indian ICBM. Spare me the news about your make-believe clock. You know, in 1983, a Russian general, Stanislav Petrov, decided not to report an alarm, and it probably prevented a Soviet counterstrike to a non-American strike. Back then, the Doomsday clock was at four minutes to midnight. Really? When one Russian general decided, eh, I think it's bullshit. We were worse off than we are now? During the Cuban Missile Crisis, the doomsday clock was seven minutes to midnight. Really? It's that much further from midnight than we are now? It's a pretend clock. Real scientists, pretend clock. Back to Ross Duthit. He said this. He was talking about Catholicism in Europe, and he said that Europe has become a museum of Catholicism. And I knew exactly what he meant. You can go there. You can visit all the shrines. Uh, I know it was. I know the the Catholic religion uh, was was from Nazareth, but the first Pope Peter took it directly to Europe. I understand it's not a lived experience, and that gave me an idea that America. I'm not. I'm not instituting my own doomsday clock on this one, but it's a real danger, and it's this that America is in danger of becoming a museum of democracy, where one day that if some recent events, in fact, some that we just heard about, if some of those went down, we would be fast on the path to this society being but a museum of democracy. And then one day tourists from around the world will come to our shores and, you know, they'll probably wear more respectful, longer pants than the shorts they were attired in. And they will visit all of our sites. They will say to us, oh, you're an American. This is post-Trump America. You know, I visited Constitution Hall and I visited Gettysburg and it's just so fascinating. It's just so beautiful. And of course, I paid the suggested admission price. I'm not a monster. I put a few bitcoins in the collection plate because I know you guys want to restore the relics, the declaration, Obama's first inaugural, the map of that last ungerrymandered swing district. It's all very important, this Western European will tell you. And then they'll even tell you, you know, we went to the glass of collections of letters to the editor, such a thing, saying we were wrong to vote the way we voted, that we had information, and we allowed the information to change our minds. I thought that was fascinating. The tour guide did mispronounce the phrase, respectfully disagree. So, I don't want to be too histrionic about this. I think we're at least nine minutes to doomsday when it comes to this, but America could become but a museum to democracy. You know who we just found out is the number one guy who's stopping that? It's Don McGahn. I did not figure that would happen. On the show today, it is an Antan Twig, our three-week segment where we collect all the listener feedback. But first, from these northeastern climes, let us go across the country to the Pacific Northwest. Now A little bit further down, a little bit further right there, nestled in the coast. It's Portland, home of the series Portlandia, where Fred Armisen and my guest, Carrie Brownstein, have held forth for eight years. If Then's a podcast about technology, society, and power. Each week, Slate's April Glazer and Willa Remus will take you on a lively tour of the tech news that actually matters, from fake news in your Facebook feed to the algorithms that want your job to the Uber drivers who want a job with benefits. (laughs) babies. On the show, this week, the world of YouTube stars. A bit culty and a bit bro-y. Listen every Wednesday to If Then. The IFC show Portlandia is in its final season. In similar news, the actual city of Portlandia will be shutting up and becoming Indianapolis. It's kind of sad. I was thinking about Portlandia. So if Black Mirror is the worst implications of technology that might exist three years in the future, some of Portlandia is the funniest implications of technology that exists three minutes in the past. Plus the world's gentlest bands. One of the brilliant uh, performers and creators of Portlandia, Carrie Brownstein, is with me here. She was also in a really good band called Sleater Kenny. Hello, Carrie. How are you?
1: Hi, Mike. I'm good. How are you? Are you sad about this? I am. It's bittersweet. Uh, you know, we were in charge of it ending. We didn't get canceled. We felt like eight years was a long time.
0: Euthanasia. That's very Portlandia. <laughs> it's, yeah.
1: It is very much. It's very DIY. <laughs> right now we're just in this kind of liminal space. It's going to really hit me, I think, in the spring, when we would normally be writing again, mm-hmm. and there's just this space, this empty space where Portlandia used to be. I must say that talking about it in the past couple of weeks doing press has really made it feel more pronounced.
0: Right, because it's over for you, it's just not over for us.
1: Luckily, now, you know, shows just have this sense of being a little more infinite. You know, they're not so much locked into time or space unless it's, like, you know, sports or some kind of live program that you feel like you really need to watch it now to be part of the conversation. So many shows, you know, people... It's just right off the a la carte menu and people are kind of watching it at their own time.
0: So when you started, you're obviously a funny person but not a person known for comedy. Did they have to sell you to IFC? Was there any, like Fred saying, you know, vouching for you? (laughs)
1: Uh, No, although I I will say... Fred was married for a while, and at his wedding, he had only one person speak,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it was me. I was sort of the best man. And this was uh, a wedding. Uh, he was on SNL at the time, so there was a lot of heavy hitters, as you can imagine. I, th- I
0: think I know who he is married yeah.
1: to. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> and um, so, so we have this room full of all of the SNL Illuminati at the time. You know, <laughs> these just Tina Fey, we pull, the, literally just some of the funniest people, plus Lorne Michaels. And... I didn't really know at the time. I was very nervous to just stand up and, and give a, a toast that was heartfelt, but also, you know, you want to you want to be funny and make people laugh. And I did that successfully. And and time went on. Um, and Fred said, "You know, that was kind of your audition for Lawrence." <laughs> I was like, "What? What are you talking about?" Then uh. I realized it's kind of true. Like, I assume he would have been on board no matter what. But I think in that moment, he understood a couple of things. One was that. I had some kind of confidence that came from God knows where to get up in front of all these people and be the only one talking, um, even though there were people probably much better suited to, you know, giving a roast or a toast or whatever. Um, and that also that he saw what Fred meant to me and what I meant to him and what could possibly come of that creatively. Yeah. Uh, so even though it was not uh, a formal audition, I I just think it allowed us to move forward with his blessing and I think with a certainty on his end that what we were going to do and what he was a part of was going to be something special.
0: Um, is there, you ever play a character you hated? You, like you couldn't wait to get out of her skin, not maybe even necessarily her makeup or his makeup, but just, uh.
1: You know, not for myself, and I think that's part of the ethos of the show is that these characters are people whom we understand, who we relate to. Fred has a character, however, named Joey, who is this really garrulous kind of New York accent guy that is definitely based on Fred growing up in Long Island. I have written myself out of those sketches. Huh. <laughs> I directed him as Joey this year, and it was a lot more fun <laughs> to observe and direct him than it was to sit opposite him.
0: Did it give you hives? Did it make you nervous?
1: Yeah, it, it just that kind of, you know, lack of self-awareness with a kind of pedantic, you know, nature and also just a, a certainty yeah. Of, of rightness oh, somebody, somebody's got to th- say i want my money back that's all i want my money back because i'm about to walk out of these things and fred knows this i mean we've talked about it a lot i like when he plays the character for him because i think it's such an interesting and kind exploration of of that guy for fred but anyone playing opposite of him is very fatigued
0: you must get serial kills in here, right god i hope i haven't seen any killers but they, I, they, I mean... they chop people up you know because they're so sick well, I think they don't understand that, like, once you kill someone, that's enough. You don't have to keep going and chopping them up like they're in, you know, the deli. Okay. I think I and other New Yorkers think about that guy who could be your deli guy. What do you want? What do you want? Ham? What do you want? Ham on that? Eggs? You want eggs? Two eggs? They're just trying to be efficient. They're trying to do you a solid by not wasting your time. And I go to places like Portland and they might have all the greatest intentions of the world, but goddammit, coffee takes 12 minutes to brew.
1: You know what? I am I am with you on that. And I also think that over-communicating is not a bad thing. You know, I think that there's this kind of like reticent quality that people think of noble, you know, that it's noble somehow to just, you know, be silent. And and I think you're right that, you know, Thinking out loud, communicating, there's an efficiency. It also helps you understand. Like when you're waiting around and someone's not telling you what they're doing, you're wondering, is it actually getting done? Yeah. If someone's walking you through the whole thing verbally, you know where they're at in the process.
0: Then again, the other side to that is the guy who checks you into the hotel and walks you through how every light switch works or how every yeah. thermostat works, which is a thing in Portland and Portlandia. Yeah, for yeah. sure.
1: So, there, yeah, and I think Fred and I um, and all the writers on the show are really interested in that kind of minutiae, that sort of performing tasks, performing personhood, performing couplehood. And so, yeah, that character which you're describing is, you know, this hotel explanation gone awry. That's the thing. It's born of good intentions. And I think that that's usually what we're trying to get at is, you know, it reaches a level of absurdity or even Mm -hmm. surrealism. But the, the intention is to be helpful.
0: So much of Portland is born of good intentions. The feminist bookstore, they think that if people just bought books as they sell them, the world would be a better place. Or the every every brunch place with rules about. If your dog can have water or not or be on a leash, all all born of good intentions. And that's why it clearly comes across that it's all done with affection, even if you are making fun of them. And in some cases, the real life subjects have taken umbrage, I take it?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I assume you're talking about, um, in other words, which is the bookstore. Yes. Yeah. So, so in other words, is a nonprofit uh, feminist bookstore slash kind of collective in Portland under whose auspices we shot um, our fictitious feminist bookstore, Women and Women First, for six seasons. Now, there there is a oversight committee and a, and a board that is in charge of all these decisions. And as with many organizations, you know, there's turnover and kind of a new crop of people came in and decided that they didn't want us to film there anymore. They just felt like we weren't aligned in terms of our philosophy and our thinking. Now, at the time, I remember... A lot of people picked up on the stories, you know, kind of thinking like, oh, this is so Portlandia that these, you know, people, but we apologize and we respect your desires. And I actually ended up just donating a couple hundred dollars to their organization and just saying like, thanks for, you know, thanks for the good years.
0: I think that's the perfect response because first of all, it's kind of perfect, like, they are embodying what they're supposed to be if they say, you know, you've gone too far and some of these jokes are really hurtful. Like, that's perfect. That's totally in your personality.
1: Exactly. And and it's something that I really respect. And, you know, there's there's no reason to to make it into something than just a conversation between two different entities. And we might not agree, but, you know, it's not contentious.
0: And in terms of comedy, maybe art, but all comedy, you know, a wall's funnier than some sort of trampoline. Uh, If everyone in Portland is like, oh, we get the joke, eh, it stops being such a good joke after a while.
1: Yeah, and I think it is, you know, it's tricky for people. You know, there's cities bigger cities that are used to seeing themselves reflected back via, you know, mass media. And no one ever thinks that every show taking place in New York or Chicago represents every Chicagoan or every New Yorker. That's impossible. These are diverse cities, are not monoliths.
0: Perfect Strangers did, though, for Chicago. (laughs) Just wanted to. You know, you are are definitely (laughs) right. right. And and, and
1: WKRP. (laughs) That was Cincinnati. That spoke
0: of That's actually the only Cincinnati
1: Cincinnati I know. (laughs) It's just a radio station and everyone lives inside of it. (laughs) Um, But, you know, you take a smaller city that it is a city that is self conscious. It's a city that um, is sensitive. You know, Pacific Northwesterners are a, we're a sensitive people. So, but we're also not all the same kind of people. So, I get that. You know, all of a sudden they feel like the rest of the world is looking at them as if they're only these really precious, you know, overconcerned people, and and they're not. It's just one our take on it. And also, Portland was just kind of a stand-in for a mindset that definitely exists all over the place.
0: Well, that's the thing that happened over the eight years. America, well, it's probably gone in a couple directions, but one of the directions is a lot of the cities in America and a lot of urban America and a lot of uh, what you might call, you know, Bohemian America, yuppie America has become much more Portlanda.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of our real lives kind of emulating what we do online or what we do online is we filter out everything we don't want to hear or see and we have these highly curated selves and we you know show people on social media a version of our lives that we kind of want to portray and we cut out all the stuff that's unsavory and people kind of did that in their neighborhoods you know yeah. they started making these like highly curated neighborhoods and just thought, like yeah, I want to be able to walk around and just get the kind of coffee I want that caters to my particular needs and obviously wh- what our show I-, I think was actually doing and we don't think of ourselves as separate from the people we're portraying is really questioning the entire time. Like, what is this idealism and ideology born of? It's kind of born of the privilege that let this ideology form in the first place, you know? And I think slowly some of, you know, in real life and also some of our characters started realizing, well, what are we cutting ourselves off from when we curate our lives so much, you know, when we sort ourselves away from other people that are not like us? And is there a benefit to coexistence?
0: But then I think that gives rise to this phenomenon where you do a tough mutter course, or like you're <laughs> curating. It's um, experiential hardship as a vacation. That's kind of a weird thing. Yeah,
1: that's, that's definitely like a very modern kind of thing where like we've distanced ourselves so much. Many, many people, not everyone, obviously, yeah. there's a ton of people working very hard jobs. Many of us, though, work, you know, jobs that don't require a lot of physical exertion, don't require quote-unquote hardship. And so, yeah, we manufacture it. You know, we manufacture these experiences that emulate uh, you know, a previous time when we really had to sweat it out.
0: What's the least artisanal thing that you consume on a regular basis? <laughs> you, Carrie, you. <laughs> well, I,
1: I feel like I eat like a kindergartner. Right? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel, I mean, I prefer pizza that's not very artisanal. I actually think there's a slight backlash where there's, now I see like mac and cheese on every menu. It's not like we're kind of returning to like diner style food because it's like got too far in the other direction. But I I, yeah, but
0: the, sometimes the cheese is, you know, asagio. A Gruyere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A Gruyere.
1: <laughs> Yeah. Um, I don't know. Pizza, I guess, is not very – tap water is not very – Me too!
0: <laughs> tap water. I, tap my, water. And, and I don't need a wooden bottle to drink it out of. Yeah,
1: and it's gluten-free naturally, so – Yeah,
0: that was good. We yeah. were ahead of that curve. Yeah, yeah. I remember like 12 years ago – Cheerios marketed itself as cholesterol-free. And I was like, was there ever a question? But now one of these trends about things you can't eat and all the things that were ne- no one ever thought were gluten are putting their hands up like, we're gluten-free. It's like, yeah, you're a fire hydrant. Of course you're gluten-free. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> this is what I'll miss most with Portlandia going and leaving the very specific observation that you don't realize so many other people have about a trend like gentle bands, you know? Right. It's a lot of the music stuff. You guys are so good on putting your finger on this musical trend and never skewering it. And I think you both have excellent credentials and no one will think that you're parachuting in and don't know what they're talking about or really trying to mock them. But it's so good. It's so precise.
1: Thanks. Yeah, I, you know, both Fred and I and then Jonathan Kreisel, who's our co-creator, we all came up at a time where music for us was so formative, really, just was the lens through which we interpreted the world, uh, kind of helped define who we, you know, were and who we are. We came up in very particular, like punk rock scenes, uh, self righteous, but also really important, like really putting out a lot of interesting, interesting work. And uh, I think we will always exalt that form and want to pay homage to some of the people that really influenced us. And yes, I think some of our keenest most keen observations are about music and the particularities. It was so much a celebration of the things that we have affection for.
0: Carrie Brownstein of Portlandia, season eight, the final season is upon us on IFC and then in Netflix. Not by DVD anymore, guys. Just stream (laughs) that shit. Thank you, Carrie.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: And now it's an antan twig. That is our made-up phrase. I will will cop to that. That is our made-up word for a three-week period. Couple of things. Since I made it up, I could expand the definition. And yes, I know the last time we did this was December 1st. But let me just make my case here. A three-week period can expand between two months. In fact, statistically speaking, most three-week periods do. Think about it. So the last one was in December. This one's in January. I think it adheres to the spirit of the three-week period. Also, I was talking to John McWhorter, the brilliant host of Slate's Lexicon Valley, and I told him I made up this word. I copped to it for a three-week period like a fortnight would be 14 days. So I wanted 21 days. And I told him it was Antan Twig. And he got it. He got it immediately. I was like, oh, yes, that's good. I could see where it'd be. Antan Twig. Very good. So with his seal of approval, I think he, he gave me his blessing. So we get into it. We get into all the letters that you sent, which were none because it's 2018. Actually, you did send at the very end, parcel post. Uh, I will be mentioning that. The emails, the Facebooks, the tweets, oh, the tweets. And I do have to correct myself. In yesterday's spiel, I referred a couple of times to Larry Nasser, the disgraced doctor who molested hundreds and hundreds of gymnasts. And while I did say that he was affiliated with Michigan State, I also misspoke on a couple of occasions and said the University of Michigan looked into him and University of Michigan doctor. Nothing to do with the University of Michigan it's Michigan State, whose president actually yesterday resigned over what Larry Nassar did. And another correction, and this one I appreciate, this one comes from Ben Utter. I had made a reference to St. Stephen, his body being riddled with arrows. Not St. Stephen. I was thinking of St. Sebastian. But now you're saying, wait, but St. Stephen, that guy's a Catholic saint. No doubt he died in a horrible way. Of course he did. He was stoned to death. and And still... His relics, his portrait, often depicted with three stones, one on each shoulder, one on the head, very sensitive Saint Stephen Saint. Stephen was Jewish and he criticized some of the uh, some of the elders of Judaism who were anti Jesus and he was tried and he was stoned to death. And because he was Jewish, if, if you know this about the Jewish tradition, sometimes you visit a grave and, you know, you put a stone on it to say, I'm here. I'm wondering if his family did that or if they thought in that particular case it was insensitive. Should I not be making these jokes too soon? The guy died in 34, not 1934, 1830, just 34. He died in 34, born in five, died in 34, which is like middle age back then. Those are the corrections. Soon I'll get to more of the generalized feedback. But I have to tell you what's gotten my goat during this three-week period. There is a series of ads... That feature a trend that bothers me. Here, let me play this audio from an ad for a medicine called SimbaCort.
1: SimbaCort could help you breathe better, starting within five minutes. SimbaCort doesn't replace a rescue inhaler for sudden symptoms.
0: Okay, now now here's what's going on in the screen. What you think is going on is some doctor lady is talking about all the things that SimbaCort does to you and maybe some of the things that are bad. And indeed, it is a doctor lady, but it's a specific kind of doctor lady. It's a cartoon wolf. The female doctor is portrayed as a cartoon wolf. It's motivated. Earlier in the ad, there's this huffing puffing thing. And so there's a wolf motif. It just seems weird to me that at some point, the cartoon wolf can say something like this.
1: Simbacor contains Formotorol. Medicines like Formotorol increase the risk of death from asthma problems. That there's someone
0: out there who's walking around saying, well, I would have died but for those wise words of a cartoon wolf. But that's not actually the trend that bothers me. Here, let me show you or play for you another example of that trend. I'm a robot vacuum cleaner, so yeah, I got one gig. I suck up dirt. Okay, well, for a specific problem to this ad, if you're a vacuum, You make that vacuuming noise and we hear that, but you're also talking. So I'm not understanding, like, is the talk hole your vacuum noise hole or is the vacuuming noise we're hearing? How can you both be talking and vacuuming unless it's like to a vacuum, vacuuming is making a noise out of some other part of the, shall we say, body? That's not the trend. The trend is this. Do you hear both those voice actors They made absolutely no effort to get in character. And it's not their fault. There is this trend in voiceovers. It used to be the Stentorian voice, Excedrin for headaches. But then it became the regular guy or the regular gal. Sure, the female wolf, she sounds pretty accomplished. She probably does Peloton. She's a high achiever. You know, she blows down pigs' houses on the weekends. She is a wolf. But it's the regular approachable person. And that's fine. These people, these voiceover people, get hired to do this. My friend Luke does this every once in a while. I'll be watching an ad for the Amazon Fire Stick. and It'll be Luke's voice. But if they told him, hey, you are the Fire Stick, I think the first question he would ask is, well, how do you want me to do it? And maybe these voice actors asked, the director, so how do you want me to be the vacuum or the cartoon wolf? And the answer is nothing. Don't do anything to be the vacuum. You have to do something, especially with wolf and vacuum. If the part, all right, you'll be playing an eggplant in this ad. And if you just want to do that as your regular voice, I think that's fine. No one knows what an eggplant sounds like. But a wolf and a vacuum, they have distinctive sounds associated with them to not incorporate those sounds into the portrayal is commercial malpractice. Okay, moving on to my show specifically, The Gist, you listen to it. Kerry Farrell writes in, I was interviewing uh, an author, Russell Shorto, and we were talking about uh, uh, a historical revolutionary figure who was a shoemaker. And then Russell Shorto said, yes, he and John Jay cobbled together and I didn't say anything about that. And you're right. If you ever hear an opportunity for me to make a great pun and I don't make it, do let me know. I need to collect these things. Another correction, I originally said that Eric Burden, the Animals cover version of Nina Simone's Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, according to Rob at SGH, other way around, the Animals covered Nina Simone. Matthew, or actually, as I read this more closely, Matt Jew writes in, I was talking to Maria Kanakova, made a reference to the vegetable succotash, <laughs> the vegetable succotash. Matt writes, and this echoes something that Sandra Gustafson noted to us on the Facebook page facebook.com slash slategist. Succotash is a medley of vegetables based in corn and lima beans, not a vegetable. And there was a good subject line, subject suffering succotash. In fact, he was. Moving on, Paul Steffen writes into me when on the show, I was wondering if my son Milo had made up his own joke or was stealing this idea from someone else, maybe Jimmy Kimmel, who he likes. The observation was that the subtitle of all the recent Star Wars movies seemed to be forming a sentence because they are The Force Awakens and then The Last Jedi. And he joked that perhaps the third movie will be called On Tuesday, The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi on Tuesday. Now, Paul wrote in and said, I don't know the origin of the joke, but I just want to note it's very similar to the conceit of the last chapter of if on a winter's night, a traveler, by Italo Calvino. Yes, my 10-year-old loves Italo Calvino. You know, I thought at first maybe he was ripping off the Gnostic Gospels, hypostasis of archons from Codex Two, But no, you're right. It was Italo Calvino, and that's a Jimmy Kimmel, where Milo got the joke. And I learned something from Deborah Seligman, who told me that me... When you say, I hope I'm saying that right, I didn't learn the pronunciation, is it nay? But when you say someone's name, a woman's name, nay, a different name, Jacqueline Kennedy, nay Bouvier, for instance, to note the maiden name, it has a specific meaning in French and it means born. And so when I said that the porn star, Stormy Daniels, nay Stephanie Clifford. Our listener, Deborah Seligson, said, uh, that's probably incorrect, but when I went on to say, and then she called herself Peggy Peterson for contractual purposes, it is certainly wrong to say that Stormy Daniels, nay, Peggy Peterson. I was using nay wrong. So I tried that. I tried that gambit. And you know what Deborah Seligson said? Nay. And now we get to the lobster. The lobstar of the Antan Twig, given to the best listener The best tweeter, the best Facebook interactor, and this, the physical product that I mentioned. Came in an envelope with a lot of postage on it, at least $7 worth of postage. It wasn't heavy. It was soft, this envelope from the United States Postal System. Uh, It was perhaps a little scary. You get a little scary when you get an envelope, but a little excited. And I opened it up, and I found out that it was a t-shirt. And the t-shirt was a picture of Donald Trump. And it was a quote he gave at the candidates forum aboard the intrepid picture of Trump and these words, when I do come up with a plan that I like, and that perhaps agrees with mine or maybe doesn't, I may love what the generals come back with. That was sent to me, made up by and sent to me, well, made up by Donald Trump, but put together by Ryan Gauchy. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. And that is because Ryan Gauchy, G-A-U-T-S. C H I for that large and extra large t shirt of that large and extra large buffoonery user of the lobster of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre May, who sports an apocalypse abacus. Just senior producer Mary Wilson has invented the kablooey sundial. Get your kablooey sundial. Wherever sundials are sold, Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He also wears a whoopsie-daisy wristwatch, 10 to 8, all the time. The gist. It is here that you will find the original Fiery Hellscape Egg Timer. Set it and forget it. oom pru de Peru and thanks for listening.